The Old Corner Bookstore building in Boston first became a bookstore in 1828, and it continued to house bookstores and publishing companies until late into the 20th century. Appropriate, then, that that was the starting point for the career of Bloomsbury, USA publishing director George Gibson. From there, George began moving through the ranks of the publishing industry, including working as an assistant to the general manager of Little Brown's trade division, as an assistant sales manager, sales director, and sales and marketing director at David R. Godin, and as a senior editor and marketing and subsidiary rights director at Edison Wesley's trade division. George arrived in New York in 1993 to become the publisher and eventually the president of the independent publishing house Walker & Company. Walker was acquired by Bloomsbury in 2005, and George continued as its publisher for three more years. Then, in 2008, George was promoted to publishing director of Bloomsbury USA. We'll talk to George about taking the reins at Bloomsbury, the difference between running a small publishing house and a large one, and what type of manuscript he would love to see cross his desk, as George Gibson joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Krista Bean, and today we're welcoming to the show Bloomsbury Publishing Director George Gibson. Thank you so much for joining us today, George. It's a great pleasure, Krista. Looking Mm -hmm. forward to it. So first off, can you just explain a little bit about what you do as the Publishing Director at Bloomsbury? I am responsible for the um, uh, acquisition of new books for the three adult imprints at Bloomsbury. Um, Bloomsbury, the main Bloomsbury imprint, uh, Bloomsbury Press, which is a, uh, an imprint devoted to nonfiction um, uh, for general readers with a, with a large dose of scholarship, and then the Walker and Company imprint, a company I used to uh, run uh, that we sold to Bloomsbury a few years ago and uh, is primarily nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, science, history, the like. Um, so I'm responsible for the acquisition of books for all of those imprints. I don't acquire them all myself. We have a team of, of 10 in the editorial department that reports into me. Um, and, uh, and then I also uh, am responsible for the, pub- the overall publishing of those books. Um, the, the publicity and marketing don't report directly to me, but I'm ultimately responsible for um, how the books are published um, and, uh, and, and work obviously very closely with marketing and publicity and other parts of the publishing uh, process to make sure that the books get the best possible opportunities in the marketplace. Okay, so it sounds like you've got your you've got a lot of things going on simultaneously. Is it? Is it? Yeah, and I'm also I'm also a working editor. I acquire books myself and edit them myself. So, um, yeah, there's plenty to keep me busy. <laughs> now, you became um, the publishing director of Bloomsbury in um, 2008, and it was a time um, there was a lot of changes going on um, in the publishing industry. Um, and you were asked to sort of step forward and, and take the reins of the company at a sort of a critical time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, there's always change going on in this in this industry, and and certainly there's uh, even more change going on right now. We're at one of those sort of crazy moments where really nobody can predict the future of the publishing industry. But um, at, at Bloomsbury, but the changes that were going on um, back in 2008, the summer of 2008, really revolved more about Bloomsbury. Uh, a number of people had left the company, um, and uh, and so I was asked to be the publishing director. I've been I've been in charge of the Walker list when when we sold the company to Bloomsbury, and so for the next three years. I, I just did the Walker list, um, 
and uh, and then in the summer of 08, um, uh, a bunch of people left, and that triggered them asking me to be the publishing director of, of all of the Bloomsbury lists here. So, um, uh, yeah, there was a little bit of a turmoil here. We'd had some layoffs and, and et cetera, but, um, but we had a very good core group, um, so it wasn't hard to get uh, get people coordinated um, and refocused. Uh, and, um, and I think we've just built from there. We've got a terrific group of publishing professionals now, and, uh, you know, we're a, we're a mid-sized publisher, so the challenge for us, obviously, is trying to play in the same big leagues with the big publishers, um, mm. because even when you're mid-sized, you need a certain level of sales uh, to sustain the operation, and therefore you need to place certain bets on books. Um, but we don't have the resources of the really big publishers, nor do we want to, and nor do we want to place the kind of bets that they're placing all the time. Um, and so the challenge is finding books that we can afford and taking those few chances calculated chances that um, we think have the best opportunities um, of uh, succeeding. Um, and, and, you know, that means we have to sift through a lot of books, and uh, there are certain books that we just can't buy um, and are not even going to try to buy, or we do try, but we get blown out of the water by, by bigger publishers, um, which is fine. Um, we accept that, and that's part of the routine here is just not taking it personally and not getting discouraged when you can't uh, <laughs> buy books that you might have liked to publish otherwise but just get too rich for our blood. Um, but then also being able to take a stand on certain books that we feel are just right for us um, and, uh, and, and extend ourselves to get those. Uh, and and you know, I think we're pretty good at doing that. Um, and we're getting better at um, taking, taking the deep breath when we need to just to say, this one's really important. We've got to have this one and mm -hmm. um, concentrating on those. And do you have like a, a, a price threshold? I always think of the people in the auction that want something so bad and they just keep betting higher and higher. But do you right. have a or do you have a rigid price threshold or is there something you really believe in you'll just push forward as much you can? There is there is no hard and fast price threshold. We we do in every auction or competition for books we go into, we uh, ahead of time establish um, a threshold that we think is right for that book, um, and it's just very useful when you go into an auction to know that ahead of time so you're not caught up in the euphoria of the auction, and, and that's where some people can sometimes pay more than they should um, because mm -hmm. they just want the book and they keep going and keep going, and suddenly you find yourself having bought something at a considerably higher price than you might have put on it earlier. So we, we try to be very disciplined about that and, uh, and, and not go much above, if at all, above the... the um, uh, the, the threshold we set, but having said that, there's no particular threshold. I mean, there, there are some companies who just won't buy a book above a certain amount of money. We don't have that mm -hmm. kind of a threshold. We, if we wanted to pay a million dollars for a book, we could. Um, we, you know, we have the resources, but um, but it would have to be an incredible opportunity and one we felt absolutely confident in. Um, uh, you know, a lot of times people buy books, and I mean, a million dollars. Most people who buy a book in any company are going to be confident uh, about it. But, um, but we we would have to have a level of confidence way beyond um, uh, anything that we have on a day to day basis when we buy books. Books are always gambles. I mean, we are publishers are serial gamblers. Uh, we roll the <laughs> dice every day, and uh, and um, you can never predict exactly how a book is going to turn out. So you're using your best instincts, and um, and and we can't do better than that. And but to spend that kind of money, um, uh, we would have to have a level of confidence that I, you know, haven't seen yet. Um, and, uh, and, and that's why we don't buy books at that level. Um, you know, the challenge for publishers when they're gambling at that level is they, they can only, a small publisher, mid-sized publisher like us can only afford to do that maybe at most once a year. Okay. Uh, at that kind of million dollar level. Um, mm -hmm. I'm talking about at that, that kind of mega level. Um, and, 
and those th- those bets don't always pay off. Mm-hmm. Um, the big publishers can do it multiple times a year, and and if and if they if only say two out of five pay off, um, that will that will pick up the slack on the three that didn't um, mm-hmm. because they can pay off big. Um, if we only do it once and it doesn't pay off, then we're really screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it just doesn't make sense for a publisher our size to make those kinds of bets. Um, and so we don't. Um, and that is not to say we couldn't. And uh, if the right book came along in just the right circumstances, you know, we would have the resources to go do it, and and we'd have the willpower to go do it. But um, it would have to be such a special case um, that, uh, that, that, and we haven't come across one of those. So it's more of the philosophy of of having a, a wide range of really solid books, but not necessarily a superstar that you're going to put all your eggs in one basket with. Well. Uh, we have superstars on our list. We have the books that we think are really going to break out. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a book that'll be on the New York Times, the cover of the New York Times Book Review on May 27th. Uh, you know, oh, great. It's a terrific book, and and um, it's called The Great Divergence by Timothy Noah, and it's the story of the history of income inequality in America, and it's brilliantly done, and um, it's getting some great attention. And so, um, you know, that we, that book is a superstar for us. Mm-hmm. Um, all publishers have their superstars, um, and you know they may not be Stephen King uh, <laughs> at, at that level, um, but you know he's a superstar for a big publisher, um, mm-hmm. and and we don't need to sell a million copies of a book. We we don't need to do that to to make our budget and to have a successful year. Mm-hmm. But we may need we might need to sell fifty thousand copies of two or three books, um, and and that could make our year. Um, and uh, and so you know, superstar to us is it means something different than superstar to a big house. But mm-hmm. then we won't have paid what the big house will have paid for those big big books. Um, and so the odds are that that we'll be able to earn out those that are bigger bets. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, having said that. You can get in a lot of trouble buying books at even at thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars. You know, you, mm-hmm. you can buy a book for forty thousand dollars and and easily project that you're going to earn it out, and then it gets absolutely no review attention, no media coverage. Um, you end up selling three thousand copies, four thousand copies. It happens all the time, <laughs> in all houses. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it'll earn out royalties of say fifteen thousand dollars, and you paid forty for it, and you're writing off twenty five thousand dollars. And if mm-hmm. that happens four or five times, suddenly it's real money. Um, yeah. So you you know there's there's no there's no particular safety in any one level of advance. Um, you know the more you pay, the more you're probably going to spend to market the book. Um, so that might be giving a book at, an additional advantage. Um, but there's no guarantee that that if you pour money into the marketing of a book, that it's going to sell. Not with 200,000 new books being published every year. The noise is catatonic out there. Um, and uh, and so how does any one book get lifted above? The noise level, um, and you can you can put a lot of money into something that that creates absolutely no buzz, um, mm-hmm. and it happens all the time. And uh, you know our poor publicity departments have to be inured to that, just as editors have to be inured to uh, the disappointment of losing books they really wanted to buy. Publicity departments have to be inured to the disappointment of not getting reviews and media coverage for books um, mm-hmm. that they pa- are passionate about and believe deserve that kind of attention. Happens all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I think if there are 200,000 books published a year, how few of them actually do get reviewed in the New York Times? How few of them actually get on the cover? 52 books get on the cover of the New York Times Book Review every year. 52 mm-hmm. out of 200,000 that are published. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's an incredibly small number. So mm-hmm. to get 
and to get one of those is an extraordinary thing. Um, and uh, how many books get reviewed in the Daily Wall Street Journal? Five a week. Um, so 250 a year, again, out of, or 260, again, out of, um, you know, 200,000 that are published. So, um, you know, the, 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 it's such a narrow window for publicity, um, and, uh, and, and all books need publicity, um, but they all can't get that. You know, obviously, only a very few of them are going to get that kind of premium attention. Mm-hmm. So then how do you get attention for the rest of them? Um, and, and it does happen that some books get very little attention, and it's enormously frustrating, even though they deserve it, even though they're really good books. Mm-hmm. Um, they just somehow don't get through the net, and, um, and that's, that's really problematic. So how does a book um, from a, a smaller publisher that does, they make the, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, um, what what trick of publicity is there to get to get that one from slipping through the cracks? Yeah, there's no particular trick. Uh, uh, publicity is is about many things. One of them is personal connections. You know, it does help to know the book editors. Um, at least they'll take your phone call or look kindly on your books. Um, but you know, some of it obviously is the book. Obviously, most of it is the book itself. Uh, is the book a good book, and uh, is it something that will appeal from a review perspective? And um, and that's that goes back to buying the book to begin with, and and developing it as an editorial exercise. So you know, one puts a lot of time into that. Um, uh, so uh, uh, there is no magic to it. Um, some publishers get more attention than others, and I mean. People in the industry roll their eyes at how much attention Random House gets, <laughs> or all the, all the Random House imprints. Um, but you know, Norton gets an amazing amount of attention. Farris Strauss gets an amazing amount of attention. Mm-hmm. And, and I got to believe, at some level, it goes back to the books. And, yeah. And and certain publishers, Grove Atlantic is another example, um, have great reputations. Um, they've, they've published enormous numbers of really great books over the course of time. So if if they you know, make claims for a book, chances are they're going to be believed. Um, and that's very important. Um, and so the more our reputation grows, for example, Bloomsbury is not, has not over the years, even though we've published an enormous number of novels, we're not known as a publisher of fiction. Mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel we ought to be, but we're not yet. Well, we were very lucky last year and won the National Book Award for Fiction. Um, oh. A no- novel that you know we loved and campaigned for, not for the award because you can't campaign for that, but we campaigned <laughs> for it um, to consumers. It's called Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. It's a great, fantastic novel set on the coast of Mississippi in the 11 days leading up to Hurricane Katrina. Fantastic oh. book. Um, but you know the odds of it winning the National Book Award are are, are infinitesimal, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and yet it found its way onto the short list, and then it was chosen, and that obviously has helped our reputation as a publisher of fiction considerably. Mm-hmm. So now agents and other authors um, look on us uh, more favorably. Are we better today than we were before we published that book as a publisher of fiction? No, not really. But now people believe in us in a way they didn't before, and that makes us better because book editors pay a little bit more attention to our books because, hey, they won the National Book Award last year. They must know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So so much of the of the relationships out there with reviewers, the media, um, come down to, uh, and this, apart from the relationships we have, personal relationships, apart from the, the books and the authors themselves, comes down to them believing in us um, and uh, and believing that if we announce a book is important, that it is, uh, mm-hmm. and therefore they take it more seriously. So, um, your reputation is something that one builds. Um, you know, I, I, I've often said that you know, perception 
is reality to many people. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they, what they perceive is is what is their reality, um, and you have to change their perception, and uh, and that takes time and. Um, you know, Walker and Company, the company I ran before we sold it to Bloomsbury uh, back in 1985, uh, published a little book called Longitude by David Sobel, a um, mm-hmm. book about the chronometer, you know, a topic you would not think would be bestseller worthy, and yet it became a huge international bestseller. And wow. that put Walker on the map. Um, suddenly, out of the blue, a company that had had very little track record to consumers, um, much more to libraries, um, suddenly had had credibility, street cred um, uh, <laughs> overnight, and uh, and we followed up with a bunch of other books that were, you know, in that vein of short narrative um, micro history, mm-hmm. and they succeeded, and so you know, but that one book turned Walker's fortunes around, and uh, and that can happen for a house. Uh, so salvage the bones, we hope, will give us credibility in the fiction arena. Um, I've rambled on a lot here, and probably way more than you wanted. So you can no, no, whatever you want. No, it's it's really interesting, and it also seems like the um, when a house backs a book that's not in a in a, a genre that they traditionally represent, um, and that book you know goes on to win the National Book Award, suddenly it's like, oh, these people really know what they're talking about because it's it's not something they deal with every day, and yet they were able to pick you know this one book out from a, a genre that they don't. It's not like their key genre. Well, but the, no, but the thing is, actually, fiction has been a central genre here from the beginning, almost. We've published more novels than we have any other category. We uh-huh. just hadn't done very... We, we haven't had big successes with fiction. Oh. Um, uh, that's that's more to the point. Um, we just hadn't had that kind of breakout success. We'd had a couple of novels that worked very well over the years, but they've been, you know, in previous years, and maybe four or five years ago, we hadn't had a breakout book. Um, and so... Uh, people didn't necessarily believe in us. They didn't know that they didn't believe that we could make a book happen. We mm-hmm. published a lot of novels that were originally published in the UK, um, small novels uh, that hadn't broken out here. Well, suddenly, you know, you win the National Book Award, and people suddenly think, "Wow, maybe they do know what they're doing," even though we had published all sorts of fiction before. And as I said, I, I don't think we're a better publisher after publishing *Salvage the Bones* and winning the National Book Award. We're not better for that. But we are better. We are perceived as better in the eyes of the media, booksellers, you know, others in the industry, um, mm-hmm. and therefore that will make us better because they'll pay more attention to us. <laughs> it's all in the perception. Um, yeah, yeah. So, can you talk about some uh, current trends that are going on in the industry right now, either with uh, submissions that you yourself have received or just sort of in the industry in general? I don't think there's any particular trends going on. Uh, you know, I get asked that question on occasion. You know, are there any uh, trends that uh, are there any categories of books that aren't selling and categories that are? Uh, I, I, you know, there are core categories in this business, and they and they continue on year after year, whether it's fiction, memoir, history, biography, uh, food, science. I mean, all those categories are alive and well. Um, and uh, and you know, the, the the books that the public wants to read haven't changed dramatically. The delivery systems are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now now with eBooks and um, and opportunities for breaking eBooks into pieces, and you know, you can sell a short story, you can sell a recipe. You know, all those things can easily be done now. Mm-hmm. Um, the delivery systems have changed and and maybe expanded the opportunity for reading, but but the public still, I think, wants pretty much what it's always wanted. I don't think the reading public has changed all that much. Um, you know, that maybe the maybe 
the reading devices will will uh, uh, over time change some reading habits, but I think people still want to read what they've always wanted to read, whatever their interests are. And uh, so I don't think that's changed all that much. I don't think there are any great new trends in the business. Uh, werewolves got hot for a while. Vampires <laughs> got hot for a while. You know, now they've faded off a little bit. Um, <laughs> replaced by some other, you know, supernatural being. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not really a trend, I don't think. Um, uh, those And those books have always been interesting. To be, that kind of book has always been interesting, whether it's vampires or werewolves or whatever. Um, you know, that kind of supernatural book has always been of interest to people. Mm-hmm. Back there, Edgar Allan Poe and before then. So uh, I don't think there's any – I don't know of any trends. I'm – Maybe I'm not smart enough to know about any, trends, <laughs> any particular trends. We just publish what we like and uh, and what we think uh, intuitively can sell, and um, you know, and that's I think what any publisher has to hang his hat on. Mm-hmm. Well, is there is there anything that you yourself are kind of dying to see? You're just hoping this really great book about something that's going to mm-hmm. cross your cross your desk. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm particularly interested in history myself, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I do keep a list of, of book ideas um, that on a piece of paper. If I ever come or you know have an idea, to sort of write it down, and you never know when you might find someone to to write that book. Um, uh, you know, Longitude was my idea. I read about it in a magazine and called the author up, and you know, and she, but she wrote the book. I didn't. I just had an idea for it. Oh, okay. um, every once in a while, you have ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, you know, the one thought in my head right now, and I've read about this in a, a couple of other books, I'd like someone to write a book about the, the, the great Italian super companies of the 13th century that uh, <laughs> that were that were the financiers of just about everything going on in Europe at the time, whether it was wars or, or cloth making or whatever. They were the ones behind it. They had huge sums of money. They loaned it out all over Europe, um, and uh, and they crashed and burned. You know, un- not unlike the Lehman Brothers of our time. Uh, you know, they overextended and uh, and they crashed and burned. I just think that'd be a fascinating story, and no one's ever written a book about them, to my knowledge. I came across them in another work of history, and um, and it was just sort of fascinated by them. So I've been casting about trying to see if I could find somebody to write that book. I haven't found anybody yet, but someday I will. Oh, that's fan- yeah, that's fantastic. Well, it kind of leads into my next question. Um, in the realm of nonfiction, do you prefer? It's not even really a question, but there's there's nonfiction books that um, bring a completely untold story to light. It's a, you know, a person you've never heard of, an event you've never heard of. And then there's others that approach a maybe a, a common topic, but serve it from a creative new angle. Which right. do you do you have a preference there or is it just the, the writing will speak for itself? Yeah, I don't have a preference. I think uh uh, something that has been written about before can be brought to completely new light by the right person writing from the right angle and in the right way. Um, it's always a little bit more exciting, I suppose, to publish uh, a story that hasn't been told before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we would take that into account when we're looking at a project where it's a familiar territory. You know, if someone's writing a new book about Franklin Roosevelt, um, God knows there have been hundreds or, or Abraham Lincoln or whatever, because every year there are new books published about these figures. Um, and, you know, we get sent our share of them and, um, you know, we would look at them carefully, but uh, but with an eye to all the other books that are out there. So mm-hmm. we've got two JFK books that we're publishing next year uh, to tie into uh, the 50th anniversary of his assassination. Um, and they, they will be among dozens, if not hundreds, of JFK books. <laughs> 
um, and we'd like to think that they're that they're going to be different and therefore stand out. One of them is collection of JFK's letters. Nobody has published his letters before. It's astonishing to think that, but yeah, um, interesting. Uh, but we're we're going to publish a, a brilliant collection of his letters, annotated. That I think will be just stunning. And and the other is a book by a man named Larry Sabato, who runs the Center for Fiction. Uh, Center, sorry, Center for Fiction. <laughs> Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. He's, he's a um, political scientist himself and, and also a commentator on TV and uh, he's writing the, the story of the impact of the Kennedy assassination over the last 50 years on the public, on mm-hmm. the media and on every president since um, and oh. it's a, I think it would be a, com- a, a completely original take on um, on the Kennedy assassination and its impact over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, nobody will be able to do what Larry has done. Um, he's hired a polling firm to do polling. Um, he's arranged a PBS documentary to come out at the same time. Um, it's going to be a phenomenally good book and and, uh, and and I think completely original, sui generis um, book connected to the to the assassination. Oh wow, well, that's fantastic! So, yeah. Know, so if if it had been a, and we did, we have seen proposals. For, and met with authors actually who wanted to tell the, the, the true story of the Kennedy assassination because they felt they had the truth. Um, and maybe a couple of them do. Um, we've turned those down, um, partly because we didn't quite believe they had it and, and because there's going to be an enormous amount of competition. If we're going to do a Kennedy book, we at least want to do one that is original. And the two we have are very original. Mm-hmm. Um, so they will hopefully stand out amongst the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And and I, I yeah, I cannot believe that nobody's published his letters before. No, it's quite amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And boy, what what letters some of them are. <laughs> Fantastic. That was still an era when people wrote letters. Yeah. Yeah, that's even that there were letters. Mhm. Um, can you talk a little bit about how um the difference between running a small publishing house like Walker and Company back when it was an independent mm-hmm. publisher versus running Bloomsbury USA today? Oh, what one thing that a very good friend and mentor, older friend of mine and mentor to me said when we were selling Walker Company at Bloomsbury is, and this sounds obvious and, and, and pretty simplistic, but it is actually not so obvious and actually quite profound. Uh, he said, keep in mind, firmly in the front of your mind, that when you are sold, you're sold. Mm-hmm. By which he meant, um, you, 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 will, you will cease having control over your own company um, when you sell it to somebody else. They will have control over it. You have uh-huh. to accept that going in, and uh, and because if you're used to running something um, and you, you give up that control, um, it can be quite disorienting and and quite frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. And he's right. I mean, and so that is a reason why most people who sell their businesses to somebody else leave within the first couple of years because either the, the the acquiring company doesn't want them. Uh, most acquiring companies think that they know better. Why, uh, why else would they be buying this company if they didn't think they could do it better? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and the people who are running the company that it was sold, um, you know, tend to tend to miss the, 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 the ability to make all the decisions themselves um, and therefore um, aren't happy in, the, in a new environment. Um, I, I fortunately, you know, became part of Bloomsbury, which, which I just felt comfortable in and, uh, and you know, it's worked out well for me. So um, I stayed, but I'm unusual in that regard. Um, <laughs> after having stayed, not I'm not I'm not pointing making making myself out to be any anything uh, good over that. I'm merely saying that most people who sell their businesses leave. Um, and and that my friend saying that to me, my mentor saying that to me, was very helpful um, because it, it, I was kind of mentally prepared 
when we sold Walker that I would not have control going forward, and, I, and it didn't bother me particularly that I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a big difference in running an independent company versus running a, a, a division, if you will, of a, of a big, much bigger corporate entity um, is you don't have the final say. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I have I have a certain amount of uh, authority and autonomy, um, um, but you know, I still have to check with my boss in London on many things, um, mm-hmm. and I can't just go make any decisions I want to make. Um, so there's a big difference right there. Um, you have to be comfortable in a corporate setting, um, and uh, I, I make a big point of getting on with people in the UK because I first of all I like them very much, so it's not <laughs> hard to get on with them, and it would be much much harder if I didn't. I really do like them and respect them greatly. Um, but it's also uh, critical to to our working well here um, that we have a smooth relationship with people in the UK because they mm-hmm. do ultimately have the responsibility and authority, and um, and uh, it's important that they that they like us and and want to and want to continue working with us. Um, so that's part of my responsibility here is to make sure we have a smooth working relationship with uh, with the folks in the UK. You know, if we were an independent company, I'd be accountable to. Uh, maybe a board of directors, um, mm-hmm. uh, but if it's a small company, boards of directors tend to be pretty chummy and friendly, and so um, you know it's a different level of accountability. Yeah, is there that's, a- that's, that's, that's some of the bigger differences. Um, obviously, when you're part of a bigger entity, you know there's more money at stake, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so uh, it's not quite as simple as just adding zeros to the numbers you might have been used to. It's not as simple as that, but it's also not. Um, a quantum level more complicated either. Um, mm-hmm. Just adding zeros doesn't mean that that you need you know four times as many business degrees to understand what's going <laughs> on. You don't. If if you have any concept of numbers and business, you know it's not that hard to to translate um, ten thousand dollars into a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Now, when you were with Walker, you said you you focused mainly on the library circuit. Um, how is that different when you um, switched to Bloomsbury? No, I, what I said, what I said was, when Walker before I got there um, was was entirely focused on the library sector. Um, oh, published an awful lot of genre fiction um, and nonfiction of a sort that was more information based um, mm-hmm. and didn't really appeal to the consumer. So um, it was aimed at libraries. Um, when I got there, you know, we started publishing much much more for consumers. Um, and it was in part because that's my background and, and, and interests, but also uh, the library market changed dramatically. Library budgets were going through um, a cutting process. Uh, not as many copies of mysteries and romances and westerns were being sold, which is some of the bread and butter of what Walker had been, mm-hmm. um, because libraries just weren't buying as many. So um, the marketplace was shifting, and that coincided with my own interests. So we ended up you know, moving towards a list that was much more geared towards consumers. Okay. Okay, great. So are there any um, new books coming out from Bloomsbury that you'd like to talk about? Well, um, and we do have this book I mentioned that's going to be on the front page of the New York Times on May 27th, mm-hmm. The Great Divergence by Tim Noah, The History of Income and Equality in America. Um, we have a, another wonderful book, I think, that will become part of the political dialogue in this election year by E.J. Dion, the great um, uh, commentator on MSNBC and many other networks and shows. I mean, he's uh, he's got a columnist in 300 newspapers around the country, just marvelous political commentator. Uh, beloved, I think, by, by people on both sides of the political spectrum because of his even-handedness. Um, 
even though he's more liberally inclined than he is not, he, you know, he's very even-handed in his assessments. And he's written a book called Our Divided Political Heart that is the, the, the history of how America became so politically um, polarized. Uh, and yeah. it, it's fascinating to see it in historical context. You know, we t- may tend to think of it as a uh, as a very recent phenomenon, but it isn't. Um, and there's been a process, an historical process, that has gotten us here. And understanding that process is a big step towards um, um, hopefully dealing with it and becoming less polarized. Um, and uh, that book's going to get an amazing amount of attention. He's going to be on every possible show, <laughs> radio, print. So, I mean, it's going to be all over the place. So there's that. We've got a great novel coming this summer um, called The Lady Cyclist Guide to Kashgar by a woman named Suzanne Joinson, a first novel that we bought with our colleagues in the U.K., um, at Bloomsbury U.K., so we're publishing it worldwide in English um, in June. Uh, it is uh, very much aimed at a female readership. It's a great summer read. Um, uh, it's a, a little bit of a time travel book because it takes place both in the 1920s in Kashgar in China um, and uh, with where a, a, a group of female missionaries is at work um, and they ride bicycles over there and uh, as, as was the case in many instances. And then a more contemporary setting in London. So there's a bit of a time travel element but really well handled. And it's just a lovely, compelling story. And then uh, we're publishing a, a work of narrative nonfiction this summer called the Dis- uh, Mrs. Robinson's Disgrace that, um, by a woman named Kate Summerscale, who about four years ago we published her, her book about a Victorian murder, the sensational murder that really was uh, – the detective who, who was trying to solve it became the model for – um, all detectives in detective fiction thereafter, from Wilkie Collins to Conan Doyle and, uh, and others. His name was Jonathan Witcher. So that was the suspicions of Mr. Witcher. This is Mrs. Robinson's disgrace. That is the story of the great divorce trial in 1858, the, the first great divorce trial in England up to 1857. Divorce had been illegal, and uh, except mm. by fiat of Parliament, and and suddenly you know, the, the social laws were were relaxed, and and divorce was possible. And this was the first great divorce trial, and it was a scandal, um, uh, a, a husband accusing his wife of infidelity because he had he, he had found her secret diary and read her secret thoughts in which she had confessed her infatuation with another, with another man, although it was very unclear about whether she had ever consummated that those feelings, uh, hmm. but he accused her of adultery. As it turned out, he lost. Um, and uh, um, but it was it was it, th- this was a true life Madame Bovary, the the novel, great Flaubert novel Madame Bovary that was so scandalous when it was published. It mm-hmm. had just been published in France, and it was deemed too scandalous to be published in English. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't available in England. But here was this real life Madame Bovary that that suddenly um, hit the front page of the newspapers all over the country, and it was just a fascinating story and a fascinating insight into Victorian life. Um, and Kate Summerscale is just brilliant at bringing Victorian life to full flower. And, and this, you know, through the lens of this particular story, does so brilliantly, I think. So that'll come out in, in June as well. That's great. Yeah. And it's a, yeah, like you said, it's a, 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 the Victorian time period is so not what you think of when you think, oh, adultery and divorce. I mean, those things are so taboo that, that right. uh, yeah, sounds like a really interesting, interesting book. Yeah, so, no, it really is. So we're uh, almost out of time, but what I'd like to do is we have a little um, thing we do at the end called Rapid Fire, which is where I just mm-hmm. give you a series of either-or questions, and you just choose uh, whichever one you like, and okay. um, it just helps our listeners get to know you a little better. Sure. Okay. Uh, books, hard copy or Kindle? Hard copy. Boston or New York? 
as a place to live or a place to work or what? Um, either, whichever. But place to work, place to work. Place to work? I've worked in both. I couldn't choose. I like them <laughs> both. Okay, early morning or late night? Late night. Pizza or pasta? Pasta. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, George. A great pleasure, Krista. Thank you. Thank you. You can visit Bloomsbury USA online at bloomsburyusa.com. And that site also includes links to Bloomsbury's other divisions, including Bloomsbury Press and Walker and & Company. And the books George just mentioned, The Great Divergence by Timothy Noah, Our Divided Political Heart by E.J. Dion, A Lady's Cyclist's Guide to Kashgar by Suzanne Joinson, and Mrs. Robinson's Disgrace by Kate Summerscale are all available to pre-order or purchase on Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. And there's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. 